This is Inspiring Nurseries podcast for nursery managers and owners and all those inspiring to be leaders in the early years sector. We are one of the only UK-based early years specialist podcasts bringing you trusted consultants, trainers and leaders in the so industry. So join me, Kate, co-founder of Hello Mums. And me, Marnie, founder of Sporty Minis. And make sure you subscribe because we know you're a busy professional and we also know that you will not want to miss this show. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram and would love a review on iTunes. Hello and welcome to this Inspiring Nurseries podcast with me, Kate from Halle Mums, my lovely co-host Marnie from Sporty Minis and our guest tonight, Stephen White. Um, so as you guys know, our listeners, we have been trying to find some interesting people and some very knowledgeable experts and Stephen actually put up a post on LinkedIn about the role of men in childcare. So without further ado, good evening Stephen and please introduce yourself and then answer a question for me and that is the question we all want to know is what do you think uh, about the role of man in childcare? Okay, hi Kate and Bonnie, thanks for inviting me here along this, um, for my first very Zoom experience. Um, and uh, so a bit about myself, I um, have been fortunate enough to be working in early years education for the last 10 years. Um, previous to that, I've been working with children, families, um, out school clubs, summer camps, um, all sorts of things in coaching world and sport, uh, lecturing in outdoor education, um, having a really great time with that. And that, that really started with me thinking about um, how do we change uh, concepts and views on environmental education and quickly realised that if it was to make any impact, then it would be better if we went into working in early years. Um, I, I stumbled across an um, article, uh, sorry, an advert in a local newspaper for working in a nature kindergarten in Persia with children from the age of two to five. Um, and it was the outdoor part that drew me in and I was very um, cautious, I think, as well in my application, being um, being male, that I wouldn't get past that application stage. Um, Why did you purely, think that? I think purely because I never knew any other men working in early years. Um, mm -hmm. All my friends who went into education would go directly into a primary six, so in Scotland, primary six, primary seven, working with children aged 10 or 11 in schools, um, where sort of historically, these are the times when children are off on residential camps or engaging in more outdoor pursuit activities. Um, and it never dawned on me at all um, to look at early years education. And I thought a lot of the curiosity was just to go and see what's going on with children aged two and five in an eight-acre forest space in the um, beautiful uh, countryside of Perthshire Perth in Scotland. Um, I turned up and was observing children from the age two um, using potato peelers to whittle, um, gathering around fire, um, making fire with flint and steel, and 
it, you know, it was really this sort of Ray Mears, Bear Grylls kind of thing happening. Uh, <laughs> I was just amazed. And I naively um, went into it thinking, you know, what, what can I really teach here? Um, very quickly, so then, sorry, I then got offered the job, which was, again, surprising. Um, and I think a great vision of the, the individual who um, who has the, the nature kindergarten and quickly fell in love with the awe and wonder that these young children bring to this very um, wild and rugged landscape that they were engaged in, how adaptable they were, um, how unassuming they were as well of, I think, what might be their perceived best from the, the adult. Um, and I learned so much from the children themselves. Yeah, their knowledge and understanding of certain aspects of the outdoors. Um, one three-year-old child, uh, he's now 12 years of age, um, came to me and talked greatly about um, what we call them jaggy nettles or stingy nettles. Um, that they weren't very stingy, as he said, in this lovely Perthshire <laughs> accent, because it was so dry, believe it or not, there'd been no rain in Scotland for a good month or so, and so they were diluted. And um, I thought, that's just fantastic that he knew of this. Um, I didn't, didn't know that, and um, therefore it was a, a two-way uh, communication of student-teacher, uh, teacher-student. And um, I then became furiously um, passionate about early years and that uh, looking at what was my assumptions as a young adult and uh, now as a, as a 40-year-old man um, about education in its essence and finding a lot of the time um, incentives and um, funding, etc., goes into the later stages of childhood and why not in the early years. And this sort of fell in line a lot with the sports coaching that I would work with, where we're looking at grassroots talent and that all the nurture must be in here because by the time that these um, sports personalities or sports people are the professionals, they need less time of the input from the coach. Um, so why is it different in education? And that was quite baffling. Um, interestingly, going into early years education, there was four practitioners in this kindergarten and three of them were men. Um, and it didn't even dawn on me that there was a, 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 an imbalance in gender at all. Um, hmm. Where 75% of the workforce are, are guys. So, um, so Stephen, sorry to interrupt you there. Well, Honest well, question. Do yeah. you think you got that job because of your qualification, your experience in outdoor, or that you're a male? Um, I think it was probably be, being a male. I think there was um, there was a quota wow. um, they were looking to fulfil. Um, at that time in 2009, certainly was a big... I mean, we talk a lot about men in childcare, but there was a bigger presence in men in childcare in Scotland, bigger drive. There was... Um, it felt, for me anyway, I mean, that, that, I don't think that's uh, factual, but it seemed to be more of a presence in conferences that were going on, um, conversations that were taking place. I was, it's been around about that time since I've really engaged in anyone approaching myself. Like you guys have come to me saying, 
you know, talking about being a being a bloke in early years education. Um, and at the time, I think, do you think that? Sorry. Do you think there's been? You said there was a big drive in two thousand and nine. Yeah. Do you think that there is no longer a drive, or do you think there's been a massive reduction in males in childcare? I think there's there's more discussion again in the past six to twelve months um, around around the same issues we were talking about ten years ago. Um, in that time, so in the 10 years of working in areas education, I've gone from practitioner to head of um, kindergartens, nurseries, project coordinators of um, a big uh, group nursery in the UK, um, to independent settings again. And there is a, a small percentage of um, the workforce they are they have male representation, um, but again, way off um, anything being of equality that I could that I could talk about. Do you think it's also because I run actually a, a temporary staff service that we provide uh, temporary staff to nurseries, but we also do babysitting, and our experience over the last six years was that very often when we had a male childcare professional parents said no I don't want a man um there's been that sort of positive discrimination um put to me um from families I've worked with for for many years um and then I've you know an interesting experience when I was the head of a nature kindergarten um close by um parent uh, came to me and was um, really concerned that a male practitioner would um, take her child to um, to the bathroom, where the bathroom was, you know, in the same area as the, the classroom, you know, as many earlier settings are, um, and was sitting telling me that by me employing men in earlier education, I was leaving myself open to all sorts of accusations against uh, male practitioners. And I'm sitting in the almost disbelief, thinking, "Is any other walk on life? How you know? Could you imagine yeah. <laughs> coming out?" And you know, I'm sitting listening to people having concerns, um, and I guess, and a lot of the the work I've gone through and um, courses I've been in, been fortunate to engage with another sort of as I would call mentors myself, really looking at that emotional well-being. Emotional intelligence, uh, the empathetic approach, um, that really, you know, um, I would say heartfelt. I think often we're too scared to talk about these things. Um, and the love for, for human beings, no matter what um, approach they're coming to. So this, these points coming to me that are, you know, bigoted, um, I won't allow that to be projected onto myself. And... Um, Therefore, I'm trying to understand where the viewpoint is coming from. Um, and I will advise them that I don't agree with their viewpoint, um, but I will listen to what they're telling me. And, um, you know, I'll give them many options on how we can go around this. And, um, you know, often it is the case that, you know, standing by the staff member, of course, um, because we're all going through the same um, checks, the training. Uh, 
And especially in early years education, I've never experienced um, as much continuous personal development um, as a lecturer in outdoor education. It was really not as intense as it is in early years education. Mm. And again, I don't think that as a, um, as a sector that we talk about that enough at all. I don't think that parents in our own settings understand the amount of time that we spend um, away from working with our children on the continuous development for our own practice and our own knowledge and understanding. Because it's, I mean, it's changing. Um, well, I would say the course all the time. Changing, but yeah, yeah, it's a, it's adapting all the time. We can over the research is is incredible. Um, I mean, we look at the great works coming through from Mene uh, Jean Bear on neuroscience, um, Kathy Brody, and looking at sustained shared thinking and emotional well-being. And interestingly, now with the pandemic and we talk about going back in school, they're talking more about we need to be looking at health and well-being. And I think the problem in education for a long time has been more about um, the well-being, the well-being, where it should actually become well-becoming. Because when you look at the curriculum for excellence in Scotland, in early years education, there's a whole sector on well-being, and it's marked off when children meet a certain criteria on that. So is that a suggestion then from education that unless the child meets all the points, all the 36 or whatever points in the curriculum, then their well-being is not being met? Mm. Um, and as we know, that it's, uh, it's such an interdisciplinary approach in education. Um, that it's you know it's, it's a bizarre it's a bizarre concept I think yes and I think what we have learned especially during lockdown with the changes that you know whatever has been set up and obviously there will be new waves of information new research amazing things will come out and there will be some good changes and bad changes but what we have seen is that now really the role of the adult who will interact with the children in the childcare settings will be crucial. And we also know that even today, even in 2020, we have a lot of men working away from home or closed out into a room and it is the women who provide the primary mm. upbringing of the child. And they need role models. They need role models. They need the role of the adult as men, women, in many other ways. And it would be foolish from a parent to think that one or the other is not needed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think on, on touching on, on that as well, when we look at the model of early years education and in the private sector, when um, we're having uh, modern apprentices that are coming in of a young age, which you know is great, and uh, and and all credit there to, to have that um, that vision and that passion at such an early age to go into um, a career where it took me many years to, to to find myself on where I wanted to be. Um, but they also then just looking at um, when you're looking at the the the, re the range and age as well. We don't see many um, practitioners. Um, and it was my own experience anyway, from, um, well, for example, where I've just gone into, I'm, I'll be the oldest practitioner on the floor at the age of 40, and I just think that's absolutely bizarre. Um, oh, really? And when you're looking at the model for the vocational qualifications, there's a higher income to be received um, or higher funding for a younger than there is for a mature student to come through. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, I think when we're looking at the shift in the workforce, especially now, um, there'll be so many redundancies. There's going to be such a massive talent pool. The policyholders and the and the, these training, um, these colleges and universities should be working a lot harder at um, meeting that demographic. Um, not only just about the the male female, um, but you know. Um, in certain parts of the UK as well, we're, we're looking at a, a massive gap in any um, racial equality as well, which is, I think, is, is absolutely bizarre. And these are some really tough questions that we need to be asking ourselves and some real critical reflecting need to take place. And I don't think that as um, a sector we're really able to do real critical reflection. I think a lot of it is just skimming the stone across the lock um, and what we're doing. And I think a lot of things can be very generic in the approach. Um, and when I, you know, asking about outdoor education, um, when I go into these settings, settings that have been approached and they're saying we've had um, a, a, a massive drop in our grades or we've, we've, um, we're just not really appealing anymore to the, the community, that you're going in and often finding a, a disconnect with communities so much, great, great disconnect, and there's still. Um, an ethos and a, a vision around <clears throat> um, something that was maybe happened 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, in fact. And um, I think a lot as well is about the education of, of our own educators. You know, um, as someone said, if you're, as a trainer, as a consultant, some, someone said to me one day, if you're consulting, who's consulting you? And um, I thought, yeah, no, wow, apart from my own reflections and, and seeking out, um, it's very hard to do, I think, when you're, you know, um, when you're on your own looking at this. Um, and often, you know, the suggestion is that we should surround ourselves with people who, are, you know, who are going to challenge us. But I think by human nature, we fall into the place where it's the comfort zone all the time, um, and we need to be in more of that disequilibrium where best learning takes place. And I think education has been sitting in that for nearly fifty years or so. Yeah, I have to say, I am. Um... 100% agree with the fact that you know we do need to dig deep we do have equality in terms of gender and race you know and we and on this podcast we like people to be really honest and we like to try and solve problems so if you could give one or two thoughts on how you think the early years education sector can really start like really start to tackle these inequalities what would it be yeah tackle them i think like you're saying about it's starting off with that critical reflection um challenging our um, our own beliefs, our own um, systems that we're operating in and really looking at our policies and our procedures, our marketing, our, um, our promotion of places for when we're looking for new individuals to come in and work in the workforce. Um, how do we tailor that? How do we support? Um, do you, you know, know any key people of influence that are you know, really setting the stage? you know, to try and bridge that gap? Well, I mean, a, a lot of the very influential, for my own self, um, again, I mentioned uh, Monet Jean-Pierre, um, Laura Henry as well, uh, really pioneering and looking at Susan, um, I pronounced this wrong and I, I apologise, uh, Dr. Susan Zedek, uh, looking at trauma um, based around Dundee area, um, and Juliet Robertson in Scotland as well, 
fantastic advocate. And and a lot of these individuals um, will communicate with unknown people, voices, faces like myself and really open up and share. Um, and I think that's critical in early years in education across and in, in, in um, humanity that it's not this um, holding on to the information and looking for it to make a quick buck and then hoping then you're going to get a retention on that business again uh, six months down the line where you're just regurgitating the same thing. It really has to be, um, like I said, that, that vocation. We need to really look at the qualifications that our young people are going through and coming out with um, and opening that up as well to, to such a wider demographic um, population than school leavers. Um, yeah. We, you know, and I think as well, there, there has to be that, that education of the parents that we're working with. Um, and I know there's great examples across the country, but it's not enough, you know, and um, how do we share that? And I think as well in breaking down all those barriers between the different groups of the, the private sector and the local authority and the council groups and, um, and, and being really honest and saying, you know, why are we in this and what are we hoping to achieve? Um, is it bums on seats or do we really believe in, in the vision and the aims that we're, you know, putting, putting forward there? And being happy mm. to receive criticism, um, because I think this is one of the only ways we're going to develop. Sorry, it is totally the barriers, and what we need is that everybody just needs to remember that they are the future generation. Those little people, they will be the future generation, and how we start off in the earlier sector will significantly determine their life in primary school, and so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, we're looking at coming in and uh, the educational background I had as a student myself going through, um, I mean, for, for I think, to categorise a failed, came out of high school with um, no hires, um, a handful of modules, was pushed into um, a trade, that I had no interest in, there was no support around my um, passion around, um, I'm, well, I was going to call myself a musician, I play the guitar <laughs> and wail out a few tunes. Um, greatly enjoyed uh, creative art and um, design technology, uh, religious moral education and, uh, you know, I was told there's no, there's no career in that. <laughs> and I think, wow, um, the emphasis being on uh, literacy, numeracy, and then the chuck and health and well-being. And isn't that just the biggest con contradiction on the planet for a lot of these um, children and young young people? Um, and, you know, and supporting the arts, uh, supporting creativity, supporting physical education, as opposed to a pastime um, or a last thought, or, and you hear, you know, so I would say maybe 10 years ago, I, I found more resistance to outdoor education um, across the education spectrum. Uh, they viewed it as letting children, letting off steam. Um, we only go outside when it's nice weather now in Scotland, it rains, you know. A lot. Um, you know, as I say, because if it's not raining, it's about to start. Um, and hence why we have so many lovely green fields and mountains and copious amounts of whiskey. Um, 
um, it, it's and and as well, I think not only on uh, the outdoors lends itself greatly to a play-based education, um, mm. and again, educating people around the importance of this. You know, when we look at uh, babies in our centres, and everything is is experimental, isn't it? It's experiential learning. We're observing this. This is amazing what we're seeing. Um, do we know what we're observing? And often there's too much emphasis on what we need to observe. And why do we constantly need to be recording everything? Are we missing out on so much just by being in the moment and being still and listening, full body listening? No, not hearing. Not hearing when to interject or when to add in or when to speak along a sort of generic and ubiquitous curricular language. But... Um, you know, tapping into all the ratios and the Montessori's and Steiner's and the Frobelian approaches that are there. And they're not, they're not new, you know, they've been around for so long. And um, and being at peace with yourself as an educator, that if you're working with a child who comes into your service at the age of three months, they're leaving a nursery at the age of five, sometimes the age of six. Um, and they're probably in education for another 13 years before they then maybe go to college or into university. So what's the big rush? What's the erosion of early childhood? And who is it for? Um, because if we're looking at, we're talking about um, a rush to get back into um, normality. The normality wasn't that great in the first place, was it? Um, before this pandemic, a very rushed society, an instant society, high levels of anxiety and stress and depression because we weren't meeting the criteria that had been set to us when we were probably at the age of three, four, or five in early years education. Mm. And um, that's a great feeling on us and as a society. And now, you know, I, I really, I live in hope, I suppose, that these changes will come in and it won't happen overnight. Of course it won't because I think as a, a species, we're not great at adapting or change. If we look at the comforts, um, the normality is the same, and um, you know. But I think it, especially in, in our timeline, this is the greatest time that we can really critically reflect, reflect and say, um, it's not about now is the time to make the changes. That 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 happened years ago. It's about how do we formulate all this thinking and all this research because it is being turfed out at a rate of knots. Um, it's there, and nowadays we've got such an amazing. A research tool um, online that we have them on our phones and our pockets. There's no excuse for not engaging in this. Um, and I think back to 10 years ago when I finished my studies in outdoor education, you were, you know, um, library, I mean, great, great use of the library, of course, but you were in hope that the five books that were available would be there at a student body of 60. But nowadays everything's online that it's readily available and it's at touch of a finger. Uh, touch our button, sorry. Um, so what's preventing us from this, you know, really? And um, again, I do think it's the guidance and I think it's a bit of fear of people speaking out and being criticised. There are always going to be people who are going to, um, who are not going to agree uh, with your viewpoint and that's fine. I think we should be comfortable with that. And I think that it's all about them um, educating and having a discussion around this um, as a to trying to project a belief onto 
um, without any basis for the grounding in that journey. And I think with going back to that instant society is that been working in outdoors, um, I should say I've been paid in outdoor work for 20 years. When I meet individuals, they'll attend a three-hour personal development course and they think they can, all, they can just turf it out at the next opportunity. And then they get disheartened when they can't. And we're thinking about um, task mastery, the suggestion around 10,000 hours to become a, you know, a professional in a thing, or you know, using that professional as, as lightly. Um, if you think about in a given year, there's around about 8,500 hours in a year. So why do we beat ourselves so much when we don't get something right the first time round? True. Um, and mm-hmm. why? And also the ability to say, well, you know, well, well I've been knocked down countless times um, and this one time it happens. And if you look at this lovely quote, um, I can't remember exactly, so it's summarising this about um, there was hundreds of versions on how not to invent the light bulb before the light bulb came to be. And if we give up at the first hurdle, then we're really rolling over. Um, and I think that we've become very complacent uh, in society. Um, we don't really sort of engage with movements. Sorry. Uh, no, no, no. Um, I was just following up on these lines because we had a previous podcast or conversation with Marley, which we have many, many of, and outdoor and spending time outside always comes up and obviously Marnie uh, provides us a physical education program she's a PE teacher it's in her blood and veins and you can see it all the time she's always <laughs> ready to do a workout basically mm-hmm. uh, but what she has noticed as well and obviously in Scotland and in many other places you got the space and I think outdoor education has come a long way uh, but Marnie, how do you see this? Because I remember having this conversation with you that it's going to be tricky because you want children to be outside. They say, you know, the guidance says it should be three hours plus. And during the lockdown, I think many families have made the most of it. But how do you see it, Marnie? How do you see it happening in London or, or in bigger cities where, you know, there is a, a, a demand? Um, I have to be honest. I think that generally children in an earlier setting don't get the activity and the exercise they need and they don't get outside as much unless they are a specific forest school or have um, an outdoor setting that allows that and I know obviously Scotland and lots of other places in the UK will have um, that facility but a lot of cities don't Um, and I think that to touch base a little bit about um, us being on lockdown and I actually think it's been a huge benefit for the industry. And I think there's a few reasons. I think one is that parents are starting to realize the um, benefits that their, their earliest settings provide for them. I think secondly, um, practitioners are realizing that they're gonna to need to have to go back to basics because they're gonna have less equipment. Um, children are used to not being stuck in a small room all day. They're used to wandering the house or going inside and out. So, you know, practitioners are gonna to need to start thinking outside that box and get those children um, moving more and not just playing with their toys because you're gonna have less toys anyway. And really, you know, and we've done a few trainings with this with an um, education expert, Alison Featherby, but, you know, really being in the moment and planning for those, the child's needs right there and then, and not getting on your iPad and ticking boxes, 
you know, because parents want to see what, what they've done that day, whereas actually we are going right way back to basics. And if you think about, you know, our history as human beings, our basics start outside. <laughs> We're all outside. We're all moving. We are not sitting down. And the unfortunate bit, and I might sound a bit naggy here, but I think children are being let down. Eek, this could bounce back on me. But they're being let down by lazy practitioners, lazy practitioners that do, do not want to stand up and create some type of activity for children. They just want to sit down because they're probably not that healthy themselves and they just don't have a passion for it. And in many um, bigger franchise nursery education, early years education settings throughout the country, they are rapidly getting rid of extracurricular providers in many different areas of the curriculum, but in particular um, physical education or physical activity because they, are, they have created an in-house program that they think that practitioners can deliver to a, re, you know, a high standard because they love it, which is just not going to happen. And what is going to happen is we are going to have children who leave an early year setting that haven't been active, they haven't developed the fundamental movement skills that they need to progress through their physical development. They haven't grown a love for physical activity or any type of sport, and they are absolutely not confident in the way that they move. And that has all stemmed from the fact that in most, and most is probably as an exaggeration, but in a lot of earlier settings, children do not get outside enough and they do not get structured physical activity. And that is the bottom line. And in terms of outdoor education for you, Stephen, I know that that's a passion for you. And I think the biggest barrier for outdoor education within an earlier setting is knowledge. The practitioners don't have the knowledge and they will most likely struggle to find the passion to want to, to advance their knowledge. And it's the same with physical education. That's my uh, input there. <laughs> Do you think it's also because they don't feel that they're fit enough to be outside? You know, if you, if you look at the forest school, the whole ethos is that you're outside whenever you can. And a lot of people who have trained to become nursery managers, nursery nurses, or anyone in the early year sector is indoors. And it's, you know, this fear of the unknown and just simple, I don't want to be outside throughout the winter. Yeah, I think, you know, yeah touching on all the points there, um, is so multi-layered that um, I think some, a lot of staff feel um, they've been kicked down uh, to not go out like the example I gave, no, you're not allowed out, um, there's a fear, the risk of the best society where a child become injured and you become liable for this, um, a lot of that from Tim Gill's work. Um, looking at where does that originate from and a lot of that coming through um, in the 80s and the 90s um, to becoming common belief and uh, you see it everywhere you know it's uh, the subconscious messages coming through on adverts where you're involved in an accident that wasn't your fault you claim and if you don't win there's no fee and all this nonsense an accident by its definition is something that was um, something that happened that wasn't premeditated um, so how can you claim against that? Um, and we need to talk about, especially in sport as well, there's inherent risks. Um, so if you're playing rugby, there's uh, an inherent risk that you could have a broken nose or cauliflower ears. Um, 
broken bones and whatnot, and you know how how would you become liable against that? I think um, physical fitness is absolutely you, you know if you're going to get down to the child's level as well, just having that bit of flexibility to do so, um, which is yeah. great. And I don't think as well there's enough education on the uh, nutritional values. Um, we do our best and they bundle that up into a health and well-being package. Um, when that should be um, completely across the board. And, and I have been fortunate enough that my undergrad was in sport and exercise sciences. Um, I was a sports coach and would understand about nutritional values uh, related to the sport that we're involved in. And, you know, um, that again is, is a great topic. But, uh, you know, again, it's another thing that's skimmed over. And then when we get um, an inspector comes into my centre and children had been given a teaspoon of a dessert that they thought was of a high sugar content, yet they were outdoors for nine and nine hours and 45 minutes a day, that's going to be burnt off in about half an hour. Um, mm-hmm. And that conversation took place and they said to me that, well, the child would become so used to it that a grandparent might offer them it at home and the grandparent will give them a whole sachet of it. So now we're becoming liable on what families are doing out with our time frame. Was another bizarre mm-hmm. conversation I was involved in, and that was okay for me to challenge. But I thought about if it was my younger self, I would have accepted that and done an outlet, you know, an out blanket to blanket ban on these things because someone in authority said so. But often they're not educated enough to give these decisions. Um, and they're under a remit that is often alien to what's happening in the centres. Um, mm-hmm. Touching back on not getting outside, the centres I go into, the whole hope is to be going outside. And when I'm observing practice, they don't at all. Um, and you can just tell, walk past any um, early years setting, and if there's lush fields of green grass, then children are clearly not in it um, because the impact is not there. It's, it's so obvious it's not happening. So what's the barriers there? I mean, I do def- yeah, I do definitely think the industry is changing. Like forest school is definitely becoming a lot more popular here in London and, and I know in bigger cities, 100%. But again, I still think when, you know, we're talking about how to change the industry or, or the steps forward, it has to be education for practitioners about the importance of getting outside and not just getting outside in in the outdoor area that might be maximum 10 meters by five meters in yeah. some settings you know but it's actually having an outdoor education program and a physical education program you can do both of those in that in that space for sure and we have to get that you know we have to is there actually here i go with my uh, business marketing hat on is there a training course for outdoor education um for earlier set of things? I think there's, um, we look at nature pedagogical approaches. Um, you have, you've mentioned forest school, that's one model. Um, and often I find that if you're going to make a change, I suppose it's a good start, but again, let's reflect on what that offers. So it's often one practitioner sent off to do a course that costs a lot of money. They are doing this under the same time frame that they're working and home life balance and, and all these things. And um, 
that one individual is then in charge of educating the entire team to deliver a forest school approach. And then mm. um, there's, you know, the, the, all the variables that take into place. So, mm. and what if that individual then leaves um, the setting, then they go through the whole process again. Yeah, and not only that, but you know, before before this pandemic and and settings closed, I mean, uh, um, managers, practitioners, they they all had other priorities related to Ofsted visits, and a lot of their trainings were around. You know, we even delivered an Ofsted training. It was called um, Ofsted Masterclass. All you need to know. And it wasn't so much about the core curriculum. It was about what is Ofsted need to see from you, which is, you know, reflecting on it, not, not in the best interest of our earliest curriculum in some areas. Um, and actually, maybe, hopefully, there's a little bit of a change coming for the industry after we get back to full capacity, maybe. Mm -hmm. But then don't you think, and then my question goes to both of you, that it has to start with re-educating the staff, so new people, whether it's your career change, whether you're just starting, no matter how old you are, if you go into early years education, then A, there should be a part that's about outdoor activities and another one that's about physical education for the early year sector. And this should cover the staff as well as the children. You know, absolutely. The staff on, you know, there's a, such a disconnect there. How can they believe in a, a methodology if um, they've not been engaged in it whatsoever? It's, um, it's such mm. a, a massive gap there. I think um, talking about, you know, the going back to the money as well with um, being inspection ready. These are things I'm often asked as well. Um, and uh, working with teams, I say to them, you know, this is this is your house. They're visiting. Um, they give you 5% of your feedback in two years of what you're receiving from children, families, staff, um, other practitioners, um, other visitors in the centre. But the emphasis on what they can do to your service is massive, isn't it? Because if you grade so badly, then they can shut you down. So there's that, that need to be able to have that, that basis, but there's too much a focus on what are they looking for. And I hear that a lot from... Um, directors um, of companies in, in early years, you know, about, you know, care inspector wouldn't agree to this, or care inspector wouldn't agree to that. And when you speak to the care inspector, they'll say, no, go for it. And um, in Scotland, they've brought a My World Outdoors um, document. We have um, Liz Parson, Education Scotland, has wrote Building the Ambition, and has just followed up with uh, Realising the Ambition. And we've had um, Care Inspectorate coming on um, training courses that I've been a part of where we're looking at the nature pedagogy. And an interesting thing, on, um, or maybe it's not, but I don't have a forest school qualification and I don't qualify any of my staff in forest school qualifications. Um, if I was, I would probably go bankrupt with staff teams because there's so much money and I'd rather put that money into... Um, resources, experiences uh, for the children or for the, the well, obviously the well-being as well, the staff team or events that we can have as a community. Um, and when I meet individuals out, um, the first thing they want to tell me is one that they've got a man working in their nursery and secondly that 
someone is doing a forest school qualification. Um, and I'm often I'm kind of bewildered as what you're looking for is my response to be, you know, on this. Um, and often just humbly say, oh, oh nice, that's, that's lovely. Um, but I've had um, universities contacting, saying, oh, I've got students to come along and shadow your forest school teacher. And I'll tell them I don't have any. Um, mm. And then they cut communication again, which I just think is is almost surreal. And I'll advise them that I've got um, well an undergrad in sports sciences, a postgrad diploma in outdoor education, um, because they like to hear these titles and all this sort of stuff, don't they? But it wasn't enough because not having the forest school level three qualification um, meant that their students couldn't come along and observe best practice. Um, which again is baffling. But, again, uh, it's all about the barriers, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's that, what's the perceived best? You know, what's the perceived best of the adult, the adults, the practitioners, the educators, the teachers? What's the perceived best then of the the educational program that they're delivering to the children? Um, and again, it's it's going back to that. Um, that comfort zone and, as you said, Marnie, the, the laziness uh, creeps in about, um, well, you know, and I think the, the scariest comment you'll ever hear is, well, we've always done it that way. Um, and that that really needs challenged on, on everything. Mm. And um, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love, I love our sector and I love, you know, the amazing practitioners out there that educate our children like absolutely love it i just have this burning desire to um help change the physical education status within the early years education framework or earliest framework because i feel that children should be exposed to structured physical activity way earlier than reception going to school um, and I would love for earliest practitioners to embrace a more healthy approach and or, you know, be open to outsource more, you know, because at the end of the day, we need experts in the field and, and that's what sets our children up for success further on down the line. Yes, but we are also innovators, you know, we are also here to influence other nursery managers and nursery owners and we have created this podcast to help people and I think it is, you know, just as this conversation has been, we have to challenge, we have to challenge those things that are set and, and we can see that changes are coming and the changes are amazing and obviously, you know, as your favourite book, Marnie, who moved my cheese, yeah. you know, we need change, but change is good, and we need change, and and we have to think about the future generation. So, with that in mind, I would like to say a huge thank you to both of you for joining me this evening, and I'm going to close today's podcast. Thank you very much for joining us, Stephen. It has been a really, really lovely talking to you. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Marnie, as well. I've really enjoyed this evening. Um, Good luck and uh, for everything that you're engaging in the future. I look forward to, to seeing what next is coming. Oh, thank you. Yeah, can you tell us? Can you tell the listeners where they should be following you? Where's best to follow you? Um, well, I guess I'm on various uh, social media uh, outlets. Um, Facebook, uh, Stephen White. I share a lot of um, 
the work that I'm engaged in and the research that um, comes my way. Um, also LinkedIn as well. Um, and I'm happy um, anyone to email me. Um, I don't know if I want to send your details later on with that. Um, yeah. You know, find my details, get in touch. I'm happy to chat. Um, always am. And I think that is where everything needs to start from. And if um, I'm ever in the area, you know, I would love to come in for a brew and everyone's always welcome to come into wherever I am as well. I think that, you know, embracing uh, people is the best way forward and sharing practice, you know, is... Um, yeah. But we don't know, we might be holding our next outdoor conference near yeah. you and you might be one of our speakers <laughs> after this mm-hmm. and you might get bombarded with lots of emails given that you just said that you're happy to, <laughs> to answer anything uh, have a lovely evening to both of you please our listeners um, leave your comments on you know let us know what you have thought about this and tune in for our next, pod- next podcast coming to you soon <laughs>